Hello, and welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Friday, April 24th, 2020, and I'm Tom Leonard, President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at TPI, and I'm joined by Scott Walston, TPI's President. Today, we're delighted to talk to Yasheng Wang. Yasheng is the Epic Foundation Professor of International Management and Faculty Director of Action Learning at the MIT Sloan School of Management. His previous appointments include faculty positions at the University of Michigan and Harvard Business School. Yasheng is currently involved in a number of research projects, which sound fascinating in four broad areas. A book project titled The Nature of the Chinese State. Second, creating a complete database on historical technological inventions in China and collaboration with researchers at Tsinghua University a project on food safety in China, a systematic risk management approach, and research on venture finance, production of scientific knowledge, and work of the future in China. He has published numerous articles in academic journals and in the media, and 11 books in English and Chinese. Let's start out by talking a little bit about the, the COVID virus and the uh, experience in China versus the experience in the U.S. A day or two ago, I was watching one of the morning business shows, and I heard Jim Cramer say, he was lamenting what he saw as the current narrative that China has defeated COVID and the U.S. has been defeated by COVID. What do you think of that statement? Do you think that that is, first of all, do you think that is the current narrative and is it true? I don't agree with that narrative, at least not completely. I don't think we can say one single country can defeat COVID-19 until every country has defeated COVID-19. China now is beginning to have reinfections. Some of them are imported from Russia. And uh, Singapore has also experienced a, a surge. Japan has also experienced a surge. The nature of the pandemic is such that this is just not something that a single country can deal with. So I'm not as optimistic about China as this statement implies. But on the other hand, we could also argue that they did have an effective response in terms of lockdown, in terms of shutdown, and they did contain the cases within relatively short period of time as compared with what's going on in Italy and what's going on in the United States. I think there are lessons there that we can learn from. There are also experiences that are not so encouraging about that system. So we should decompose this issue rather than having just one opinion about China. So why don't you go ahead and kind of decompose it? What are the lessons to be learned? And I think the lessons, the big lessons are three. There could be more. The big lessons are three. One is that the Chinese system is terribly bad at uncovering and discovering new problems. And this is not just unique to COVID-19. In 2002-2003, SARS crisis, they let the problem escalate, and then it got out of the country as well to Hong Kong, to Vietnam, and then also to Canada. It didn't reach the level of a pandemic only because of the nature of SARS, which is that it has a very high lethality rate, a high mortality rate. The transmission rate is relatively low. So the nature of that disease prevented SARS from becoming a global pandemic. But there are really some area similarities between COVID-19 and SARS in the sense that early detections didn't work. There was a lack of transparency in the early period. 
And then the problem was allowed to go to the level that became extremely hard to contain and mitigate, right? So that's the first lesson that we ought to recognize. And so I would say to those people who praise China, let's not forget that the system let the cat out of the bag. Any appraisal of what it was able to accomplish later on has to be recognized together with that letting the cat out of the bag reality, right? The second one is mitigation and containment. And there, you know, once you let the cat out of the bag, the Chinese system did turn out to be quite effective and efficient, brutally efficient, in fact, right? Because it's an authoritarian system, and it also has a long history, long culture of compliance, and they locked down the city of Wuhan, 11 million people, and then Hubei province, 59 million people. In a way that it's hard to imagine doing the same thing in a democracy. As we know in the United States, even now the total number of the cases is reaching you know, 800,000. We're still debating about uh, shelter-in-place policies, and there are still protests against the policy. You don't have to worry about that in China. So because of that ability to impose essentially total lockdown, stop the chains of the transmission very, very quickly. So if you look at the flattening the curve, it happened about three weeks after they locked down Wuhan, right? And so it was quite effective. And then at least according to the official number, we can come back to say whether or not the official number is the right one. The total number of the cases is uh, 82,000, right, as compared with 800,000. And China has four times population as the United States. The third lesson, I would argue, is technology can play a very important role. Big data can play a very important role. And this is what we wrote in the Harvard Business Review about the use of technology, not just in China, but also in Singapore, in South Korea, in Taiwan, and in Hong Kong. So there is a very important role of technology. So this is separate from medicine, which is treatment and vaccine. There's no question that science in the end is going to be our savior. But before we get there, before we get to the vaccine and treatment, technology in terms of contact tracing, in terms of uh, collecting information, can also play a very important role. But that's predicated on having certain cultures in place, having certain relationship between government and business in place. And I think to replicate those in the United States will be harder. And so I'm not advocating the East Asian model necessarily. All I'm saying is that we should have a serious debate about the issues about privacy, vis-a-vis public safety, the issues about the role of the government in an emergency situation. So, so I will see these three issues, right? So discovering the problem, mitigating the problem, and containing the problem through technology. These are the three big lessons. It sounds like only number three is, is really something that we can act on, though, right? I mean, we're not going to change the way China operates. And so we're kind of at their mercy in some sense, because they aren't going to be free with information. And so the oppressive system creates the or makes it more likely that a virus can escape and a democracy makes it harder to fight the virus. And so it seems like three, the, the role of technology and data is the main tool that we have. Is that what you think? 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. I definitely think that technology piece is one that we have a huge capability in. So I'm not going to say that we have better capabilities than China, because in this episode, Chinese companies have shown that they are extremely capable. But definitely United States is second to none in that area. But even the technology piece is not just about writing codes and softwares and things like that. It's actually the technical issues are almost secondary. The primary issues are, you know, to what extent you can protect the privacy of the users of the technology while achieving the same level of effectiveness, right? I think at this point, I can only ask the question. I don't think we have the answer to that. My own view is that there is a trade-off between the two, the effectiveness vis-a-vis privacy. Whether or not we should sacrifice privacy for the sake of effectiveness is something we need to debate. I believe that we ought to debate that issue rather than just saying, oh, it's bad for privacy, we don't do anything about it. I think that's a bad attitude. On the other hand, not on the other hand, but related to that is the issue of the role of the government in deploying the technology. One thing we know about COVID-19 is it has very high transmission rate, which means that you have to do these things quickly. You have to implement mitigation measures. You have to implement contact tracing measures very, very quickly in real time. So that means adoption of an app, of a contact tracing app, has to be almost instantaneous and universal for that to be effective, right? I mean, as we know that uh, no technology that we know of, even the magic iPhone when it came out in 2008, is adopted within three weeks, right? So the natural rate of the adoption may not work in a crisis uh, scenario. You know, so I, you know, I don't know what the alternative is. All I'm saying is that we cannot depend on the natural rate of the adoption. But I, how did Korea, how did South Korea manage that? Because that is more or less what they did, right? Well, but there's a background factor, right? And the, the Korean culture, the South Korean culture, is a more of a trusting culture of the government. So when the government says that, okay, we recommend this technology, people tend to say, okay, so this is good for us. Right. People, the first question people ask is not going to be, oh, the big brother is getting my information and they're going to arrest me you know, next week. That's not the first question they ask. The first question they ask is, okay, because they recommend it, therefore that in and of itself suggests it is good for me. Right? That's a very different mental model. Right. And, and, you know, that's not really necessarily a function of political system. It's probably a function of just societal trust in the government, which, sadly speaking, we don't have a lot of in this country. Right. And so my co-authors and I are thinking about this issue and we sort of gravitate toward the idea maybe in the next crisis, we should delegate that to a public institution in the United States that's most trusted by the public. An opinion survey shows that the most trusted public institution in the United States is the military. You know, so maybe we trust the military more than we trust the Congress. But Scott, I do want to go back to your 
initial observation, which is only number three is relevant. I also think number one is relevant. We are a democracy. We ought to have this advantage in uncovering and discovering the problem early on. What has failed in the United States is not democracy, but leadership. The leadership has failed. The reason why I say it's not a democracy that has failed, but the leadership has failed, is because now we know within the White House, within the administration, there were memos, there were opinions, there were alerts, there were warnings about the potential contagion to the United States. So the democracy actually worked in terms of producing those early alerts and warnings, right? Nobody got arrested simply because he or she sounded the alert. Dr. Fauci, you know, I listened to him and, you know, he talked about the dangers very early on. But it's a failure of the leadership because the, because the leader chose not to pay attention to the information. So you cannot quite blame the system. You have to blame the leader. And we have a bad leader. Indeed. So getting back to the third phase, the contact, which involves contact tracing, so, I mean, I was struck by uh, reading recently about uh, um, this Kaiser Family Foundation poll of people about whether they, you know, what they would do in terms of downloading this app. And in this country, barely 50% of the population said they would download the app, if, assuming even if the only use of the app was to alert them that they had come into contact with somebody who was infectious. So it wasn't even... As far as I understood the question, it wasn't even a question of sharing their information. It was a question of getting information that might help them protect themselves and their family. And still, there was only roughly 50% who said they would download the app. So if you look at the, and you know, the Apple-Google proposal, which calls for voluntary downloading of the app on an opt-in basis, and usually, and I don't know, my intuition is that fewer people would actually download an app than say they would download an app in a survey, but I don't, I don't know if that's true or not. But anyway, how successful would a complete, in this country, would a kind of a completely voluntary system be, voluntary opt-in system be? I mean, for such a system to work, you really have to have pretty widespread adoption, don't you? Absolutely. It has to be nearly universal or universal to have it work, right? So maybe it doesn't have to be 100%, but 80, 75%. We have I think there are two problems that I see. One is that we don't have this level of trust in the government, which, you know, in other situations has guarded American society against tyranny, against bad politicians, you know, Watergate and all of that. But we also don't have a very high level of trust in big tech, right? Google, Facebook, Apple is probably a little bit uh, viewed more positively. I don't know, but Google, right? Facebook. And so now you have a combination of two actors that are not highly trusted by the public. So I guess my issue is that when we say 50% people, only 50% people would opt in. We don't really know whether the 50%, the other 50% don't opt in because of the privacy issues or because they don't trust these bad actors. I mean, these are two issues connected with each other because I may trust you. I may give you more information because I trust you. So my privacy concern is less. So I think these 
two issues are intimately connected. So the larger issue going forward is how do we restore trust in government and in big tech companies? And let me put out another competing value, which is democracy. Okay, there was a remarkable election that happened in South Korea. National election, legislature election. They were able to hold the election when the COVID nineteen was still a real risk. To the health of the Korean voters, and by the way, the turnout rate、uh, during the COVID nineteen election in Korea was higher than the turnout rate in twenty sixteen in the United States. So people were willing to line up to vote because they felt safe, right? And they gave up some privacy. There's no question about it, right? So I think it's. We need to have a more sophisticated debate on privacy. Definitely, we don't want to trade privacy for greater power on the part of a authoritarian government. That would be a very bad thing. But are we willing to trade some privacy for safety? Are we willing to trade some privacy for the sake of holding elections? That should be the debate. So, for a country like the U.S., which has these problems. Of you know, rapid technology adoption, you know, we can't do things the way Korea did. We have a leadership that doesn't seem capable of building a coherent policy or an effective policy. Where does that leave us now? Well, okay, so there are two pieces to your question.、Uh, I guess there are two answers to your question. One is that we have poor leadership, and the technology adoptions are not going to be as quick as in Korea. But we also know that social distancing is beginning to yield results, right? If you look at New York, I live in Massachusetts. We are going through some sort of surge, but in New York, they seem to have things under control, despite the poor leadership and despite the technology adoption problems. So I think in the end, we're going to have the problem under control, but it is just going to take longer. It is going to have a higher cost in terms of number of infections, in terms of number of mortalities. That just a brutal fact because we don't have a good leadership. Because I would say leadership failure probably explain maybe sixty, seventy percent of the problem. Technology is really a small part of this. The reason why I say this is that technology now, wide scale adoption. It's only important because you allow the cat out of the bag. Suppose you acted proactively back in January, back in February, in terms of having appropriate social distancing, in terms of greater preparations for hospitals, and so you don't have to deal with this surge. Then the need for technology is actually less, right? Because if you are able to contain the problem to One or two cities, then you actually don't need universal adoption of contact tracing technology. So I would say the technology piece only becomes important because you let the cat out of the bag. In China, they let the cat out of the bag. They let five million people leave Wuhan. They let the problem go from small number of patients to a large number of patients initially in the first three weeks of、uh, January. In the United States, because the administration didn't take any meaningful actions other than the travel ban, and even the travel ban was not terribly effective, and they didn't really ban European travelers. Now we need the technology, right? 
So that's point number one. Point number two is when we decide to reopen, whether or not we have nearly universal adoption of technology is going to be really, really important in how well we fare in reopening the society, reopening the businesses, and reopening the universities and the economy. In China now, they have a lower number of cases, right? Almost like a single digit or just maybe double digits. New cases, new cases. But because they have this tracking capability, so if you show up for work, I will immediately know whether or not you have an infection because they have this QR code that has three colors, green, yellow, and red, right? If you have a red code, you can't even leave your apartment, right? So the country has this kind of individualized level of information. When you reopen the business, when you reopen the universities, you can actually check whether the student is able to come into the classroom or whether or not he or she should stay in the dormitory. That's going to make a critical difference when the policymakers in the United States feel comfortable in reopening the business, in reopening the economy. Because China is going to have it. They're going to have reinfections. As soon as we reopen, we're going to have reinfections. I have no doubt about that, even though I'm not a medical researcher. But from what I read, that's almost a certainty. But how you deal with a reinfection right, matters tremendously in terms of how confident you are to reopen the economy, to reopen the business. So that's going to bite us, right, by the time we decide to reopen. So that probably is a, a good note to end on. This has been a fascinating discussion, and I would like to thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Scott. I really thank you so much. Our conversation. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you.